Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Deborah Frost, Chief Executive of Personal Group, a leading UK provider of employee services, including employee benefits and insurance products. Deborah, hello. Hello, Matthew. Thank you for coming on the program today. Now, normally we get straight over to the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, how has this affected the way in which you carry on with business? Well, it has um, affected us quite strongly. We're an insurance company and we provide insurances for people who work, who aren't in a position where they get sick pay or death in service from their employers, something many of us take for granted. And so we've been dealing frontline with people phoning in to say that they've been in hospital, they've been unwell, or even families phoning to say that unfortunately they've been bereaved. Mm. And my team are working from home, from coffee tables, kitchen tables, bedrooms, coping with all this. So it has been tough for us, and I'm really proud of the way that our team have responded. And let's talk a bit about uh, the logistics of uh, this entire situation. Have you found there to be a backlog of uh, work uh, or have you been able to cope quite well uh, with uh, the uptick in uh, business? Um, I think we've coped extremely well in the circumstances. Um, we, We normally have a field sales team who go out and meet with policyholders in their workplace um, and obviously the impact of social distancing has made that impossible for us in the short term. But we have been able to offer telephone support to our policyholders instead. And again, we've had people working from home on that. Um, we are very keen to make sure that we keep our promises. One of the things that I think the insurance industry hasn't done particularly well through this crisis is it sometimes felt like they've tried to wriggle out of their commitments. But we've been uh, keeping our promises and being dependable for policyholders and uh, paying out on our policies as well as talking to clients about the employee benefits that we offer. Now, of course, uh, this has changed the way that people work within your own organization, I would imagine, as you alluded to with the social distancing and home working. Do you feel that you will ever go back to the uh, the pre-COVID manner of working when it comes to the level of personnel within uh, your actual physical office? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, isn't it? I think uh, I'd say that the team is really mixed. So we've got some people who absolutely love working from home and I think will be very hard to prize back to the office if, if it's easy to do. Um, we've got some people who are tolerating it and I can see them going for a sort of mixed economy in future coming in past the time and working from home past the time. But then we have got some of our office sort of real keen people who are really desperate to get back to the office. Um, One of the things that's been very challenging, I think, for lots of businesses is to think about how can you make people feel more certain in uncertain times. Mm -hmm. And so we've been able to um, say to staff that they're not going to come back until mid-September into the office. And I think that's reassured people quite a lot that they don't have just one thing less to worry about. They know that we're not intending to re-office, open the office until mid-September. And so they know they're going to be working from home until at least then. But yeah, I think you're right. In future, I think the world of office-based staff is going to look very different. For our other companies, uh, we, we have we have a, a technology um, business which provides technology solutions for um, 
uh, employees as part of the employee benefit solutions. And those guys have been in the main working from home, although there is a practical element to what they do, you know, quite a lot of the time um, they are shipping out goods to um, our customers. And so we have had a couple of people in the warehouse and they will always be around. I think transport and logistics is probably one of the least affected sectors, isn't it? Mm. Well, we should move on to the subject of leadership. Uh, I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? Um, I think I think it's about being authentic. I think it's general about being genuine um, with with people, but it's also about creating a narrative so that clients, our employees, and our shareholders and investors can really understand what we're trying to do as a business, what our purpose is, and how we're delivering against that purpose. So for me, a lot about being a leadership is being really clear. And I think what has come into sharp focus through this COVID crisis is actually there are occasions when you can't be clear. Yet there are more questions than there are answers. And handling the uncertainty that I think we're all facing on a daily basis is really challenging. And so I think one of the things that I've probably developed through this crisis has been also admitting and recognising that we don't have all the answers and that therefore being honest and authentic about that is really key. Now, let's uh, talk a bit about your personal leadership style. How does that uh, manifest itself on a day-to-day basis? <laughs> um, well, I'm usually quite friendly and quite personal, so I uh, I tend to be very easy to chat to, I think, and, and, and lots of the employees, are, we have we have a lot of, sort of fun and a lot of jokes in the office. What, what I've done on a weekly basis since the crisis is, is had a weekly broadcast with all 250 employees, now not Everybody attends every one of them, and uh, and certainly there are some weeks where I, where I have to dig quite deep for some material to cover. But we've covered all sorts of topics. We've covered business updates, but we've also talked about the, the general work that we're doing in the business to prepare for the future. We've uh, we've had a, a lockdown university, so we've put an awful lot of training and um, development activity online and really encourage people to think about what they want to come out of lockdown, having achieved. And that, that can be work-related, and it's particularly key, I think, for our employees who are on furlough, that they feel like they've come out of this with something positive, as well as obviously those who are working really hard, um, you know, to support the, the, our clients and policyholders through all of this. So I think, uh, you know, quite a lot of it is is maintaining that personal contact. And, uh, and as I said earlier on, I, I, I think probably from time to time, recognising that this is quite hard and acknowledging um, how difficult it is for people and recognising how well people are doing. I tell them how proud I am of, of them extremely regularly. And uh, and the weekly broadcast, we've just recently done our employee engagement survey, which as I'm sure you can imagine I sort of went into with a bit of trepidation. We normally have really, really high results, and I'm thinking this is going to be difficult. But actually, the results have held up. And I think that's partly because me and my leadership team and the management teams have just spent so much effort in making people still feel part of our our work family, mm-hmm. um, and that they're not forgotten. Whether they're they're working incredibly home at, hard at home, or whether they're so we're all still part of the same group, and we're still aspiring to come out of this really strongly. Well, let's talk a bit about uh, when things uh, don't go uh, to plan, as as it were, um, when conflict rears its ugly head. What is your method uh, for resolving conflict? 
I think the first thing to do is that people should actually talk about it. I know this is quite this is this is quite a basic thing, but you'd be amazed at how many times when one or more people fall into conflict. And this this I think has the has the um, opportunity to happen much more frequently when we're not meeting each other face to face very often. You know, it's harder to connect when you're on the phone to somebody or on a Zoom call or something like that, just simply because you don't get all the visual cues that you normally do. But the number of times over the last, I don't know, 12 to 15 weeks where we've been all working from home, where something's happened, and I've said, well, have you actually spoken to him about that? Or have you spoken to her about that? And the general answer has been no. And so people get behind their wall of email and start firing emails back and forth to each other. And I'm just like, okay, just take it off email, speak to each other. And and I have, I have to be said, I have refereed a few conversations and negotiated some, some agreements. But I tend to think once you get people talking about the things and asking each other what's going wrong and why why we got to this position, actually in the main, with a bit of goodwill, most conflicts are able to be resolved. And, and deeper understanding on both sides of what, what motivates Well, also, when it, when it comes to email, there's no tonal difference uh, when it comes to email, you can't tell how someone's saying it and meaning it like you can in actual speech, uh, unless they're doing the all caps yelling uh, version yeah. of email. <laughs> well, hopefully, it doesn't get to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think I think people can be quite, um, you know, they're quite careful about what they're saying in email, and they'll craft an email very carefully, and they'll think about every word. Mm-hmm. And actually, once you get on a call, you can be much more free and, and as I've said, sort of much more authentic in the way that people speak to one another rather than trying to make it too, too formal and sort of, uh, you know, trying to make their points too strongly. And, and often, it's what it's like, Matthew, it's, you're trying to find common ground, aren't you, rather than the reasons why you can't agree. Let's find the reasons why we can agree and then go from there. Now, unfortunately, our time together has run out. But, Deborah, before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for Personal Group? Um, I think we've got some really good opportunities. We're we're a well-established business. We've been around for 35 years. And we have a product that we've been selling in a very similar way for most of those 35 years. And in some ways, there has been new opportunities, I think, and new creativity through the crisis, which I'm sure will stand us in really good stead. Um, over the next 12 months in the way that we approach things and we think about doing things differently and even completely new things. And the second thing is I think people will get the chance to have maybe promotions or opportunities which they perhaps wouldn't have had um, in more normal times. So I think there's always the opportunity for someone to come along and try out something new and suddenly end up with a new job which they didn't expect, um, but a chance to try something really different and, and embrace change, which I think is going to be key for all of us over the next 12 months. Well, Deborah, it's been a pleasure having you on the program today. I do hope we can have you back on when things get back to normal. But for now, Deborah, thank you. That was Deborah Frost, Chief Executive of Personal Group. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know 
Have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... Um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost I'd been I was a Middlesex player I was Mm. captain of Middlesex all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later I've scored a test century which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test I mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly I started thinking wow hold on potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails so it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that uh, I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think... In those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive... um, Mm source of advice for me so he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis my wife Ruth played a a huge Mm. role you know just in terms of because I I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world, and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 
Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you Quite. know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just 
clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, And when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. (laughs) How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. Let's. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? 
Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... In fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, freshly school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die... Um, we learned a lot in that process and, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth 
before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers Um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... Uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... a uh, very inclusive if you're thinking about think about a marathon but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26 sounds ideal so we've got grandparents we've got little kids we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds um we've got the red for ruth day at lords again so that was an incredible day for us it last year you could you, whether you were there or not especially if you were there i mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in 
in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I'm very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the hundred. Not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the blast has clearly shown. Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are yeah, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.